In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today we read uh, the gospel reading, uh, which is the, the famous story of the Samaritan woman. And if you re recall, we also read the same reading um, during the Great Fast. And what the church is kind of bringing to our mind here by choosing the same reading again, is that when these readings were read, that we're speaking about Christ and him being the Messiah, and what is it that he is offering to humanity during the period of the Great Fast, it had not yet been understood and it had not been manifested yet because the people didn't yet understand truly what it meant and what his mission was. After the resurrection, now we are like recalling all of the stories and the things and the encounters that happened with Christ while he was on earth. And we are looking at it now with like fresh eyes, like in a new way for us to see really, yes, it is true. You know, we remember the things that Christ did and the things that he said. And now it's like coming back to our mind again, kind of with a new perspective. So that's why, um, even though we read the same story of the Samaritan woman before, now during the Holy 50 days, um, we read the book again, or read this chapter again. Um, I, uh, I want to start with just a, a short story or, or just kind of an interesting encounter that happened. Um, the, the verse in Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 59, it says, uh, Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This verse is the context for this verse is when um, Christ is uh, seeking disciples and, 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 and people are coming to him and, and they want to be his disciple. And one man goes and he, he wants to be the disciple of the Lord or Christ here is, says, follow me. He's asking him to come and be a disciple. And the response of the man was, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Um, it, it was an excuse. It, it was an excuse for him to delay and not to accept this calling that Christ was calling him to. There was this young girl who, when she heard this verse, um, she commented that this man, instead of saying, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, that he should have said, Lord, come and raise my father from the dead. Um, in the sense that the, the man didn't understand this man who said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, didn't understand who it was that he spoke with. And certainly here as well, the Samaritan woman in this story, at least at the beginning of the conversation, she didn't understand who it was that she was speaking with. And, and she was expecting too little of him. You know, at the beginning of this story, all she was hoping for was water from him, right? She, all she wanted is water. And, and when, when he revealed to her that he could, could give her water to drink always, she, she understood this in the context of the physical water. And so she said, give me the water. I don't want, I don't want to come here anymore and draw water from the well. Just give me the water and I will be content and happy. Um, and so she expected too little of him and didn't really know who he was or what really he was offering. And uh, Christ responded to her and, she, and he said, in verse, uh, verse 10, said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He would have given you living water. He's saying, you, you misunderstand me and you, you underestimate. Like you think that I'm here just to give you something that is like trifling, something that is temporary, something that is, you know, you can get some other way. But what I'm offering you is something that you cannot get any other way. And so this woman, she didn't realize what it is that he was offering her. And oftentimes we also are expecting too little from God. And, and this phrase, if you knew the gift of God, and who is it who says to you, if you really knew 
who I was, if you really knew what God is, is, is offering to you, you would have asked him for much more than you are asking. And maybe this is our problem as well, is that often we, we underestimate God. We, we think that he is less than really what he is and that he is not able to give us really what it is that we need. Um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And if we meditate on this verse, when he says to him who was able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. If we just think about that for a moment, that anything that we ask for, he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than even we can contemplate, more than even we can think about. This is what he is able to do. And this is what he is offering to us. A verse that says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has come into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him, right? The, the promise of God is, is far above anything we can imagine. The, the, the reward of God, the, the life in heaven is greater than anything we can imagine or contemplate. Anything we, we, that we could even ask for, that he is offering us something even greater than this. And certainly here as well with the story of the Samaritan woman, he is offering this woman far, far more than she can imagine, far more than she can even, even contemplate or realize. So I wanted to speak a little bit today about um, what are some things that really maybe we, we, we misunderstand or we don't see or realize what exactly God is offering for us or what God wants us to be doing. We, we're thinking maybe in a worldly way and we're not lifting our minds up to think what is it that God is actually um, is offering. So first is um, if we only knew how God intended for us to live. You know, how does God intend for us to live? What was the original intent that God had for us in our lives? Um, in the Garden of Eden, this was the place where God intended for us to be. This is the place that he created us to be and the place where he wanted us to enjoy our lives. In the garden, there was no death. There was no pain. There was no suffering. Um, all the things that now when we think about the world that characterize the world for us, all the things that we think about, um, that maybe the needs that we have that are not met here in the world. In the Garden of Eden, this was not the problem. This was not the case. In the Garden of Eden, all of our needs were met. In the Garden of Eden, there was no pain or suffering. That is the way that God intended it for us to live. In Revelation 21, okay, when God is speaking about how he is going to restore all things again, he says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is the way that God intended for us to live. If we only understood and knew that this is the way that God intended for us to live, then maybe we will see God in a different way. How many people become angry at God because of the suffering that is in the world? How many people? The number one reason for atheism is for people that um, feel like that God could not exist who allows all of the suffering in the world as it currently is. But we see that God did never intended for the suffering. God created us in perfection. God created a good and, 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 and very good place for us to be. We are the ones who corrupted it. So if we only knew how God intended for us to live, then maybe this will change our mindset, our perspective on ourselves, on the world, on who God is and, and, and what he has done for us. 
if we only knew how sin separates us from him, okay, how, how much that we are separated from God because of sin. In Isaiah 59, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Right? So God is hearing our prayer, but if, if we are living in a life of sin, it says that he cannot hear. His ear is heavy that it cannot hear. Our iniquities have separated us from God. If we really understood what the power of sin was and how it separates us from God, then maybe we will look at sin in a different way. Instead of justifying sin, maybe we will confess sin, right? In, in, instead of uh, reaping the, the negative consequences of sin, then maybe we can overcome these consequences. How much does sin bring us shame and fear? Just like in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they felt shame and they were afraid. They started to hide from God. Um, they began to blame one another. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. All of these things happened after the sin. There became to be divisions. Even in the very first family, we read about Cain and Abel and how Cain kills his brother Abel and he was jealous of him. Again, this happened from the very beginning after sin entered the world. How much sin isolates us from God and isolates us from the church and isolates us from other people, right? Today, we have so many people living in darkness and blindness and so many people pursuing joy and pursuing happiness in the world through means that, get, that they can never attain. And that they think that this life is the only life there is, right? And, and, and living for only this life. This separates us from God because we don't, we're not looking to please him. We're not looking to live according to his commandments or his way. If we only understood what sin was, then maybe we would take this more seriously. We would take more seriously the idea of repenting from sin and avoiding it. If we also knew only how God seeks after us, if we understood this, how much God seeks after us, that he wants our salvation. In 1 Timothy 2.4, it says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If we only knew how much God seeks after us, if we only knew how much God runs after us and wants us to return to him, maybe this will change our mindset, our perspective on things, to really see the love that God has for us. We see God seeking after us all throughout history. In the Old Testament, we see it in the law. We see it in the prophets. We see it in all the messages that God was sending us through these prophets that he would send. We see it, of course, in the incarnation of Christ and in the crucifixion of Christ, that God allowed himself to suffer for our sake. You know, the incarnation and the death of the Lord is actually a greater miracle than the resurrection because the resurrection is God's natural state. He is the source of life. He is naturally alive right he was he's eternal and always eternally living but the fact that god can allow himself to die and to suffer this is against his nature right this is this is astonishing to, to when you really think about it because it is against his nature and yet he did this because he is seeking after us um in so many ways he sends us messages he sent us his holy spirit um he he, he sends all kinds of uh messages to us and ways that he, he tries to connect with us and people to try to get our attention and, and his words to, to try to fill our minds with understanding and the church and the sacraments. He sends us so many things and he's always trying to remind us, return to me, come back to me. I'm here and reminding us of his presence at all times. So if we only saw and felt and knew 
how much God has been seeking after his people since the very beginning, then again, maybe this would change our perspective that God is, is seeking me even more than I'm seeking him. Just like the Samaritan woman, she didn't, when she came to Christ, she was thinking in a very like limited way, right? In a very limited way. Maybe we feel that we are always the ones that have to go to God and God is not coming to us. It's actually the, it's the reverse. God is coming to us more. God is the one seeking us more and he wants us to return. If we only knew how much God sacrificed to save us, you know, and uh, how much did God actually give up? What did God endure in order to save us? In Philippians 2, it says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is what Christ endured for our sake that he, he made himself of no reputation. He was born in poverty. He experienced hunger and thirst. He was beaten and mocked. He took flesh on himself. And the one who was outside of time allowed himself to experience time, allowed himself to enter into time. In the Friday Theotokia prayers that we pray during the midnight praises, it says, he took what is ours and gave us what is his. We praise and glorify him and exalt him. Right? We, are, we have been given his nature and he has taken our nature. The nature he has given us is an eternal, powerful nature. The nature he has taken from us is a weak and frail nature. And he allowed himself to experience this. One of the reasons that uh, the Gentiles uh, had such a difficult time accepting the message of the cross was because for them, their gods were powerful gods, right? Who, who, who could have thought of a God that was so weak that he allowed himself to die by his own people, that he was so weak that he allowed himself to die and he couldn't save himself, like he couldn't rescue himself, he couldn't defend himself. This is the way they, they saw things, right? Um, but in Christianity, we see it differently. We see that God's power is manifested in his endurance, his love that he had for us to restrain himself, to refrain from using his power to, to, to defend himself because of the love that he had for us. He wanted to go through this suffering to redeem us again. So if we only knew really how much God sacrificed and what does it mean for God to take on flesh and to accept this suffering and, and it's, it's for God, the one who lives in, in eternity, the one who lives in heaven, the one who is ministered to by the angels, the one who has all authority, to allow himself to, 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 to condescend and to come down to earth and to live the life that he lived and to go through what he went through. This is more than, more than we can comprehend that God did in order to save us. Again, if we only knew how much God really sacrificed to save us. If we really knew and understood what heaven is like, right? We, we, we read in Luke 15, 10, about the rejoicing at our repentance says, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And also, First um, Corinthians chapter two speaks about the reward that we will receive. It says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, the things which has which God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven is the place where God dwells. 
And for us to be desiring to be in heaven is desiring to be with God. If we really understood what heaven is like, if we really understood that this is a place of complete joy and union with God without obstacle, without separation, without there being anything to cause us to fall into sin and to be separated from God, it is a place of complete harmony and joy and union with God. Um, you know, sometimes we think about heaven as, as this place where um, all of our desires will be met, okay? But we ask ourselves, what is my desire? What is my desire? Is my, is my desire to be with the Lord? You know, if this is why when, um, when Christ was speaking about heaven and he said, the kingdom of heaven is within you, right? The kingdom of heaven is within you, meaning that we can experience heaven inside of ourselves because God dwells in us. It doesn't have to be something that is external to me that I'm waiting to go to a certain place. Certainly heaven is the culmination and the ultimate experience of union with God. But even while we are in the flesh and even while we are alive here on the earth, we can experience the heaven that is inside of us, right? We can experience union with God in us. And, and this is what God is offering us. He came to the world and he said, I am making you my dwelling place. I'm making you a temple for me to dwell and to live. This is what I want to be, where I want to be. I want to be living inside of you. So God has created this place inside of each of us for him to live. This union between God and us is beyond any union that he has ever done with any other of his creation. Even the angels, like we look at the angels and we say, you know, his angels are holy and righteous. They're always obedient to him. They do everything that he asked them to do. They have not sinned, right? And yet even the angels do not have the union that we have with the Lord. The kind of relationship that God has for us, the love that God has for us is such a unique love and a unique union that is different from any other creation. And this is what heaven is about. Heaven is the culmination of this union, the ultimate consummation of union between us and God. So God is offering this great reward. God is offering it both in eternity and he's offering it both to us now here on earth. And this should be a great source of rejoicing for us, that we are joyful in his presence, always with us all the time. If we really knew what heaven was like and the reward of what it means to be in union with him, then again, maybe we would uh, look at life differently. We would look at ourselves differently. Also, if we really knew how short life really was, if I knew how short life really was, um, we often live our lives as though it will last forever. Because the first memories that we have, obviously, are here in this world. And we've never experienced anything else apart from this world. And even though by faith, we believe that there is another life after this life. And even though we all know that there will be a final day in this world that we will live. And yet, it sometimes seems very far away. And it seems like um, it's, some, it's a day that maybe will not come to us. It's happening to others. But to us, it's just distant. It's distant. It's hard sometimes to live with the understanding that our life is limited and that our life is short. But if you speak to anyone who is more elderly, who um, you know is getting close to that time, maybe they look at life very differently than someone who is young. They look at life with a sense of most of my days are past now. And I have to be very prepared and alert and watchful and, and ready for the days that are to come. In James 4.14, it says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It appears for a little time, 
if we only knew how short life really was, maybe this would change our perspective. Maybe it would change the way that we live. In Ecclesiastes chapter one, it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes focuses on the idea that all the things that we are doing here in this life, no matter how important they might seem, in the end, anything that doesn't contribute to our eternal life is vanity. It's something that doesn't really have any permanent effect. It has no permanent benefit. Even people that reach the like the the you know the pinnacle of power and authority and money and pleasure, regardless of what it is, those people after they die, it will all disappear. And people will even forget their name and who they were and what they did. And so it doesn't matter what they accomplish. And so the idea is here that the point of Ecclesiastes and what King Solomon is trying to tell tell us is don't spend all of your time, all your resources, all your energy on something that is temporary. Don't put all of your effort into this. If we only knew how short life really is, not just in a, in a kind, of, um, kind of disconnected kind of way uh, that we know that our life has an end, but if we really experienced it. One of the great virtues of the Desert Fathers that they would speak about was the remembrance of death. And while it sounds kind of morbid, maybe to think about our death all the time, but the idea of the remembrance of death always kept the monks uh, focused on what they had to do in this life. Even though the things that they had to do were difficult, even the things they had to do were, uh, you know, uh, we would look at them and say, well, you've sacrificed everything. You've sacrificed any opportunity for pleasure in this world and you've given it up and gone and lived in the desert. It's because they had this virtue of the remembrance of death. They understood how, sh how short life really was and they deferred all enjoyment. They, in they, they deferred everything to heaven. That's where they understood that the true reward would be there, not here in this life. Any reward that we receive here is temporary. It's fleeting, just as we said before, vanity of vanities, right? But, but for us to really know what is true reward, that we wait for it and we experience it in heaven, we have to understand how short life really is. The last point is, if we only knew how our restoration to God only requires our repentance. Sometimes we feel after we have lived in sin and that we have um, strayed away from God, we feel like there is no road back again. We feel like there is no way that I can return again. And yet when we look at the what is it that God has done for our salvation, God did what was impossible for us to do. He accomplished salvation on the cross. And what is left for us to do is to repent. The prodigal son, when he was away from his father, he felt estranged from him. He felt like my father would not even accept me again unless I return as a hired worker, as a, as a servant. He would not accept me again as a son. And only when he reached rock bottom did he even consider that. And yet when he returned again to his father, his father accepted him as a son. He restored him completely. And the son offered a repentance and he, he was regretful for what he did. And he saw how the father accepted him unconditionally and restored him again completely to his place, even though he did not, he did not deserve it. In Acts chapter 3, we read, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is what we are seeking. And this is, again, if we only knew, if we only understood how we, we get restored again through repentance, the power of repentance, the power of confession, this sacrament 
is what restores us to God again and again and again after so many times that we fall. And, and if we really understood this sacrament and the beauty of this sacrament and how this fixes everything, every mistake that we make, this allows us to return and it, it, and it erases all of our mistakes. It erases our sins. It erases um, all of these things that we feel are, are making us to be estranged from God, separated from him. We take for granted that God accepts our repentance so easily. That all it takes from me is to come and say, I'm sorry. I regret what I did. Help me to change. And that this is enough for God to, uh, for, for, for God to accept us again. It was not always the case. In the Old Testament, no matter how much people repented, there was no means of redemption. There was no means. The people had to keep offering sacrifices for their sins. And even all the sacrifices that they would offer, they would never be forgiven because they would keep sinning again and have to keep offering sacrifices again. There was no forgiveness then, right? This is why everyone in the Old Testament who died went to Hades. There was no one who went to paradise in the Old Testament. And yet it was only after the sacrifice of Christ that his work of salvation and God showing us mercy that forgiveness became something that was given to us as a free gift now to all who seek it. That whenever I seek it, it is offered to me. No matter how far we have fallen, restor restoration is closer than we think. So it's important for us to remember this. If we only knew how restoration only requires our repentance. So in conclusion, we spoke about several points based on the story of the Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman came to Christ uh, and when he revealed to her that he could offer her water, she didn't understand and asked of him just to give her this water whenever she wanted so she wouldn't have to come and to draw water from the well. It would be more convenient for her. She didn't understand what is it that Christ was actually offering. And so he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so we spoke about seven points today about how is it that we see Christ? How is it that we see him? Do we misunderstand him? Do we underestimate him? If we only knew what is it that Christ wants us to understand, how is it that it would change our life? If we only knew how God intended for us to live, just like in the garden, if we only knew how sin separates us from him, if we only knew how God seeks after us, if we only knew how much God sacrificed to save us, if we only knew what heaven is like, if we only knew how short life really is, and if we only knew how restoration only requires our repentance. If we keep all these things in mind and we live with all these things in our mind, maybe it'll change our understanding. It'll make us see life in a different way. It'll make us see God in a different way and realize how much he is working to save us and how much he is preparing the way for our eternal reunion with him. And glory be to God forever. Amen.